Clubhouse Press Pass, your one-stop shop podcast where we take you behind the scenes with coverage of festivals, cons, and live events. We're nearing the end of our coverage for Season 10 of the ATX TV Festival. Tonight, we're giving you, me and Paul, are going to be giving you Day 9 Roundup from the festival. Uh, There was a lot of stuff on the docket today, Paul, but I think you and I are only going to be covering three things from today. Right. We'll be looking at uh, blind spotting. Continuing coverage of speech and debate. <laughs> yes, uh, accidentally continuing coverage of speech and debate, yes. And then finally, HBO's new primetime show, The White Lotus. This was the marquee event, I think, for the night, right? Because they had a screening of it as well as a panel. So it was a big deal for them. Right. Well, and historically, HBO has brought a new show that they put on Saturday nights. It's, it's either Friday or Saturday nights, depending, but they brought Sharp Objects with Amy Adams a few years ago, and they brought Euphoria a couple years ago. And HBO has actually been an ATX sponsor since year one. And they pick it up more and more, you know, different different sponsors as they've gone, but HBO has been there since the beginning. With us uh, approaching the end of the second year of 10 days of ATX, presumably next year is going to be back in person. You'll Y'all will be back in Austin, everyone gathered around. Are you hoping that they keep some of the formatting from the virtual events? Or do you suspect that it's just going to be back to the three and a half days of jam-packed, having to make decisions to go see this or go see that, uh, and maybe miss some stuff? I bet they just go back to all in person. Although, if they could maintain the VOD aspect allowing people to to watch the the pre-read if you will yeah. on, on their own time that might that might really work out or be able to watch something that because you had to make a choice you know that you can then go you shouldn't be penalized for that if you've paid for a badge that you know maybe you can go watch the thing you you missed because there's there's value to seeing something live and in person there's an energy there but there's something that's maybe informational that you would still want to watch even if you didn't get to watch it in person yeah that's that's one of the benefits of, of going and standing in line with people is that uh, you you do run into some of the same people often. That's how we met uh, Derek from the Geekdom Fancast, actually, and how uh, we kind of ran, ran across Cat several years ago was through her being there and her knowing you <laughs> right <laughs> was was it kind of looped us all in together it's it's you get into these you have the opportunity to get into these long conversations about what they've been watching how they've been watching it cuz a lot of people don't actually use TVs anymore it seems they use phones they use pad or uh, iPads they use laptops or whatever they screeners, got screeners exclusively screeners if you don't have screeners you don't watch it <laughs> a lot of people admit to to using BitTorrent or whatever those various ways of pirating things are they'll just tell you that uh i'm way past that phase for anybody that's listening (laughs) but but yeah people just get their tv however they get their their tv and and it's interesting uh, for as a podcaster to to know that you know how how people are digesting their tv and and uh, factoring that into you know how why report on it it's true and i think atx has has a really good track record i mean i I know you guys have been going basically since the beginning of this as a tv 
watcher and blogger before even becoming a podcaster, I was always aware of the ATX TV Festival as a purveyor, as a as a as a fine taste selector, as a connoisseur mm-hmm. of of things that maybe you should be on the watch for because they don't be because it's. Uh, it's only so many slots that they have to fill. They have to be selective with what they allow in there. You know, uh, there it's not everyone come along with your TV show that's premiering. There, there is some selectivism that's going on there, and they also have to make room for new things. But there's also a big nostalgia bent, right? They spend a lot of times doing reunions and bringing back old favorites like FNL or what was the other faking it reunion that they did this year. They have a lot of plates in the air that they're trying to spin. But I think the effect of that is that ATX has become known as this kind of connoisseur of fine taste, a very narrow influencer of things that you should be looking out for. And they can have broad influence when they need it. They There's there's a lot of credit being given to the ATX reunion for the Gilmore Girls in getting kind of enough impetus behind the idea of a, re, of a revival to actually get it made. Because that, that occurred about, you know, 18 months before it actually got put to, to net, or live on Netflix. So, yeah, those things all kind of worked like dominoes. Right. Well, I mean, even look at like speech and debate. When we spoke to Cassandra Jean and Stephen, you asked them about whether or not to use if they were thinking of using speech and debate and taking it to the festival, this festival and all the other festivals that they've been showing it at as maybe a springboard to as, as kind of a pitch for a TV show. And, and during their live happy hour that they did today, kind of, that came up again, actually referencing without saying us referencing, I think, our interview, Stephen. Amel mentioned kind of it acting as a pitch for a TV show. Uh, and then I guess it came up in another interview because he said someone pitched him a character for the show. <laughs> so they would be silly not to think of it that way. Today was a busy day. And I think there was a total of six things on the docket today. So everyone that's watching ATX from home is watching one of, you know, is watching six things. A lot of people are going to be seeing this thing. It's not like they had to choose between A, B or C go to going to a panel if they were watching and they decided to watch atx at five o'clock central time they were watching the speech and debate live hour that's all they were watching it's a lot of exposure that you can potentially reap the reward from so well in this this format you don't necessarily have to miss anything that you don't want to whereas we've had to make some hard choices in years past and wound up sometimes on the short end of it afterwards you'll have figured out oh shit that was rick and morty (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Sounds like a stupid thing. I'm gonna miss it. And they're like, "Oh no!" Uh, right. Yeah. It was Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland came one year, and it just didn't have the it didn't have the you know cultural impact that it does now at the time. So it was like, oh, whatever. I don't I don't know who that is. And then now I I'd, I'd give a, a pinky to have seen it. Well, that kind of is a nice segue, though, to the first panel that I'm going to talk about, Blind Spotting. Uh, it was actually inside the writer's room at Blind Spotting. This is a new series that premiered on Stars on June 13th last Sunday. The second episode is is on the 20th. If you were a badge holder, you could watch the two episodes on the VOD, or if you have stars, you could watch them. The series is not a reboot or an adaptation of the movie. It's a continuation of the 2018 movie, which was written and produced by David Diggs and Raphael Casal. The TV show is also by them, but it's not telling their story. It's telling the story of the character Ashley, who was a minor character in the movie 
now she's the lead and played by the Broadway actress Jasmine Cephas Jones, who actually was Angelica Schuyler in Hamilton when I saw Hamilton. She originated the role of Angelica Schuyler in broad in the Broadway's Hamilton. Uh, there's your David Diggs connection. Uh, and she was actually still in the show the first time I saw Hamilton. So that's she she was my Angelica. That's <laughs> it, 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 it sound like a total Broadway nerd. Now she's now the lead of this show. The whole thing is built around her and it's telling the story. Her husband or her guy, Miles, who's played by Raphael Casal, he's in the pilot episode. He is hauled off to jail unexpectedly on a drug charge, leaving her and their son, Sean, to now move in with his mother-in-law and really having to pick up their life and figure out what they're going to do. They move in with his mother-in-law, who's played by Helen Hunt in rare form. I've never seen Helen Hunt in this kind of role before. Uh, Ashley and her son have to move in with her and her stepdaughter, Trish, who is a sex worker, has like her sex worker friends over in the pilot and they're working on things. I don't know. There's a lot going on there. And they have this like 12 year old boy, Sean, kind of coming into it. And he's like, oh my God, there's nipples everywhere. And there's a lot happening. And these are the- like uh, prostitutes or like OnlyFans women or uh well i think the the pc term is sex workers i believe it's what we would call prostitutes but i think that they refer they were old themselves. men huh? yes yes <laughs> yeah back in the day you get a prostitute no they're yes yeah, sex workers whatever that may be whether it's an only fans thing or a stripper or or a, or an escort or whatever anywho <laughs> <laughs> so it's an Oakland story. They, they, were, they talked a lot about on the panel how they were looking for writers that could tell a Bay story that knew this life. This was what appealed to Raphael Casal and Debbie Diggs to begin with to do the movie. But they were very clear uh, in the panel. They didn't actually speak a ton. Well, Casal did. He's the showrunner. Debbie Diggs actually didn't speak a whole lot. I think he was there more. I mean, he's probably an executive producer on the show, on the show more just to be like, that he's connected to it so it gets doors opened in a way that no one else connected to this this show probably can get doors opened at this point because david diggs if you guys have don't know is having a moment of fame he's <laughs> he's kind of everywhere right now he very much is yeah Him so or his did, voice lionsgate who produced their first movie and distributed it wanted them to do the sequel they had no interest in doing a sequel or an adaptation or anything and lionsgate said you have to do something so they came up with a wild pitch about all right we're going to continue the story six months after the movie it's not going to star either one of us it's going to pick up on this ashley character it's going to be experimental as fuck it's going to have dancing out in, in the middle of nowhere and music in the midddle of nowhere and it's going to tell a a very authentic, real story about this this person of color and her son and her struggles in Oakland. And it's not something you've seen before in any way, shape or form. There you go. That's our pitch. Thinking that Lionsgate would never, ever want to do it. And Lionsgate was like, take our money. Take our money, go make the show. Then once they started working on it, they started assembling the writer's room. They started breaking these stories and trying to write these characters. They kind of fell in love with the story. And Raphael Casal, really, I don't really know him from anywhere, but listening to him, Paul, talk about the process of writing characters and creating and world building and learning it on the fly, that because that was one of the thrusts of this, is they have no fucking idea how to make a television show. They didn't know how to write a writer's room, how to build characters, how to write for all these voices and build all these characters but he had such joy talking about it if you hadn't seen the show i think you'd want to watch it just by listening to his kind of passion and like ebullient 
enthusiasm for the project, I think would make you want to at least tune into one of the first two episodes. Have you noticed that that's a very similar kind of feeling I got in like a lot of the panels was even if the show in the long run, in the the final analysis, if the shows that we're talking about in our podcast turn out to be middle of the road pieces of shit that, that no one cares about in the panels, there's a lot of enthusiasm for what they're doing in, in most cases. I don't think I detect, I mean, I've been to some panels where the, the people that they had brought in clearly had been traveling for some amount of time and they were not at their best. You know, I, I was excited about the show preacher when it came out. Then we went to see, Oh, the, me too. Me too. We went to see the panel and it was like they'd been traveling for the for the previous 36 hours. I don't know if they had been, but they acted like they had been and they just couldn't bring themselves to answer anything that didn't sound like a yawn. And so the lack of excitement about it was like combined with sort of the frenetic, this is going to be a lot to, to remember everything that's going on kind of pace of the show was like, I'm going to prioritize something else in my in my schedule. That's a shame. I've had friends tell me that I would have liked it. Preacher never lived up to its potential. Though I found the show very enjoyable. It was the first graphic novel I ever read. I, I used to go out to Tower Records at like midnight out on Long Island. And I would I would sit in the graphic novel section and I would read issues of Preacher. And I was below it. I had never seen anything like it. You know, I didn't grow up reading comics. I certainly didn't grow up reading graphic novels. That was all stuff I came to later in my life. But Preacher was the first, was really the first comic series of any type, graphic novel or otherwise, I ever read. And it changed me. It it changed how I saw this medium that I never really appreciated before. And so when they went to make a TV show of it, I was beyond excited for it. It was good. It was it was it had moments of being great. But by the end of the first season, it was it felt like they were just so exhausted from making it Mm -hmm. Um, and it just lost steam progressively. And I think I think I started the second season and I definitely didn't finish watching the second season. And I think it even limped to a third, maybe even a fourth season uh, before it went off the air, which is a shame because, again, very few projects I get excited for coming out of comic books uh, that I have a personal connection to. This was one of them. But anyway, that's really neither here nor there. I think the takeaway from the blind spotting panel for me was this is a writer's room filled with young men and women, mostly women, people of color, getting their first shot to tell stories that they've never been able to tell before, tell stories that they've never seen be told before. And because of the outrageous pitch that Diggs and Casal gave to Lionsgate and Stars. And that they said yes to, they have a lot of freedom to tell those stories. I can tell you the second episode of Blind Spotting has a scene where Jasmine Cephas Jones, she does a combination of destroying this person's hotel room who were like really like white obnoxious jerks to her. Uh, she like works at a hotel. She just, I, at this point when we're recording this, it's already aired. So I feel like I could say this without giving spoiler warnings. She destroys this room in the most cathartic way you'd ever want to destroy someone's room who had annoyed you or upset you while also doing like spoken word, like slam poetry at the camera. <laughs> But it's so infused with anger. And Jasper Stephen Jones is not a big woman. She is a she's a tiny package woman. Uh, but there's so much anger and life coming out of her. I couldn't 
tear my eyes away from like the five minutes that the scene goes on. It's it has its moments. It's definitely worth taking a watch. It's not going to be for everyone, you know, but I think it's worth everyone at least going and checking out what they're doing over there. I, most of that, again, coming from the enthusiasm of listening to these people talk about this project makes me want to watch the show. Yeah, well, that can be the effect of these panels is if you go in yeah. uh, without a lot of prior knowledge, you can come away like with with a show on your to do list. Now, you hinted that we were doing some continuing coverage of uh, speech and debate. Why don't you lead us into what this uh, happy hour was about and uh, and what else we know about speech and debate? Mike and I interviewed Cassandra Jean and Stephen Amell, husband and wife team that helped create this series of shorts called Speech and Debate, sort of a Christopher Guest-esque <laughs> style examination of these two speech and debate high school coaches that go to war with each other, one of them being Stephen Amell. His, his wife, Cassandra Jean, is the director of this. Their friend, Cayman Edwards, wrote it. And a friend of theirs, Aisha Tyler, co-starred in it. Aisha Tyler is famous in her own right. She has she's a comedian and has a strong social media presence and acts in TV shows and movies. And, you know, she directs TV shows now. So she's pretty famous all on her own. But this panel was with Aisha Tyler, Cayman Edwards, Cassandra Jean, and Stephen Mel. But unlike most of the other panels that we saw, they were all in person with each other, apparently in Austin on director's chairs in someone's like atrium, backyard, patio. Having a few beverages. Yeah. It, it was uh, it was during their happy hour. So I think that was what allowed them to be drinking while they were doing it. So uh, and Aisha Tyler acting kind of as the moderator. I mean, she yes. was definitely talking a lot about her own experience, but she was she was definitely the one tasked with the moderator role here. Having done the Talking Dead for a little while uh, during uh, Chris Hardwick's exile. After he returned, I think she went on to host, I think she did one for Diet Land, and I think she's done a couple of other okay. official like after show things. The, the same the same Talking Dead style, but for other AMC shows. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, that's yeah. Like become a new career for her. So John Barrowman from lots of stuff, but Doctor Who and uh, the Arrow spring to mind was supposed to be part of the panel. He's in the third installment of the speech and debate series, but he was not in attendance. Which you and I talked about. Obviously, there's a lot of heat on John Barrowman right now. If you've been on social media at all in the last month, so you you and I I think were texting a little bit while this was going on because he was listed in the credits as someone who's going to be on the panel. It was a big reveal. You'll hear us actually joke about it with the Amels in our interview. You know, it was kind of like a he who should not who shall not be named because they were keeping it a surprise because his reveal in the movie in the in the third installment is is like their big twist. Then he doesn't show up on the panel. He's not there. And you and I are like, oh, well, I wonder, or, or did they ask him not to come? Is there something related to the heat he's under right now? But then, out of nowhere, they kind of brought him up. Were you surprised that they that they brought him up after a while and that they all had nothing but really nice things to say about him for quite a period of time? It kind of turned into the John Barrowman toast hour. No, I mean, they're, I think they're friends from a long time back. If you never watched Arrow, uh, John Barrowman played a villain who kind of ended on mostly frenemy status i guess yeah i mean and, and he is a charismatic guy he is even in a, a villain estate he is hard not to like 
on screen. He's just fun to watch. And I've met him. I've met him a couple times at cons. I've been in a bunch of panels with him. He's exactly that same way in person. Uh, you walk out of there enjoying yourself because he had been there. I don't know if you've ever been in a room with John well, Barrowman. At, at, at Comic-Con, they have a just a John Barrowman hour. That's it. He's not pitching a show. He's not there to talk about Doctor Who or whatever. He's there to just talk about whatever he's going to talk That's a pretty rare freaking yeah. thing for just a single personality. I think and he. I think it's just because he just loves. It. I think he loves attention. I think he loves being. But I think he loves interacting with fans. And you know, he was like a series regular on Arrow for for the first couple of seasons. Uh, obviously, him and Stephen Abel. I mean, Stephen couldn't stop talking about how much he would crack him up and how they weren't able to do usable takes. You know, time and time again because you know how J- John Barrowman like makes it his mission to make uh, Stephen laugh. And I I was on a panel where he was one of the panelists. And he jumped down and he became the person who holds the microphone for the cue line to ask the panel questions. Okay. Like he re- he relieved the con the con person and told them to go sit down. And he like held the microphone as people would come up and be like, What's your question? And like they would say that the microphone and he would like, you know, it's like, that was a really good question. And then like he was like talking and interacting, but like holding the microphone in like the aisle with these like peasants you don't ever see that <laughs> you never ever see that at cons there's such a security wall between the the talent and the the plebes and uh it was yeah that's just how he that's just what his whole persona is i was happy to hear them talk so kindly about him and apparently he sent cassandra jean a video message that they were going to show and then talking it out this was pretty funny to me talking it out loud they realized they probably should screen it uh to decide if it was suitable for viewing audiences or not. <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's an excellent idea. One of, the, one of the topics he talked about when I saw him at Comic-Con was how he, I guess, well, apparently he Instagram lived from his hot tub where he lives with, I believe it's his husband. They were not wearing bathing suits in the hot tub and his husband got out while the camera was rolling. I think he's got a habit. I feel like I've heard many interviews with him where it's not unusual to open up a picture from him and to see his uh, ass or penis. Uh, I, I, I think that's kind of like his kind of go-to more times than not. Wow, that's 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 getting to be out of <laughs> out of step with current yeah. practice. But well, uh, and, I, and I think that has a large thing to do with where why he's in the the hot lukewarm to hot water that he's in right now. Twenty twenty one is catching up with him and his his antics. But uh, you know, with they the quote from the panel was he came in like a force of nature. Uh, they also said that he possibly has a cantaloupe in his pants and he brought his own wardrobe. Those are three things that sum up, I think, the John Barrowman experience is what they said in the panel and seems to jive with what you and I know about him also. <laughs> Having watched all three segments, the third one was by far the loosest in terms of the amount of resource that they had to put into it. even though they had an additional star they they seem to have less in terms of like set and makeup and lighting and camera operators and that kind of stuff it also had to be made also during covid time right if they're premiering it now 
they still had they had to have filmed most of it. That's probably an excellent point. I mean, they probably did their own makeup and probably had to set up their own lights out of what they had, given the timing. Then, so I'm, perhaps I'm being too hard on it. Um, it just it just seemed like maybe they wanted to make it. Maybe they just wanted to make it because they wanted to make it, you know, because uh, they weren't making anything and they're creative people. Politely wise, I think the phrase that Aisha Tyler and Cassandra Dream both used was that it was like a guerrilla experience, you know, like guerrilla filmmaking where they yeah. kind of didn't, didn't put too much thought into it. Just kind of turned the cameras on and, you know, let's see what kind of magic we can make kind of thing. So who knows? Yeah, honestly, listening to them talk about this project, it really just sounds like something that they were bored, something that they wanted to do. Cayman Edwards had written this thing as a feature film and then kind of backed it down into a shorts. You know, you, you asked that question about whether or not this could be pitched to a TV show or into something larger. Clearly, that's what it started. I mean, it started as a full length movie that then got cut into little pieces. So, you know, I think at some point it was just we need something to do so we don't go insane during COVID times. I don't know. I think if you go in to watch it with just trying to be entertained and not the highest expectations, I think you'll probably have a better time than if you go in thinking it's going to be Citizen Kane. Yeah, expect something like a, a Glee you mentioned that that it reminded you of Glee, but a Glee type concept in that that's got the high school setting and sort of the nerd esque kind of you know non sports club kind of thing, and yes. but then kind of that Christopher Guest style humor and camera work, you know, think Best in Show, you know, something like that. Yes, uh, Christopher Guest without the Eugene Levy, you know, with a hundred percent less Eugene Levy. <laughs> You right. get Barrowman. That's what you get. <laughs> you right. get John Barrowman. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that's right, though. I think it's that level of of farce or absurdity. People who take speech and debate, these two these two adults who take speech and debate as if it was competitive blood sport, you know, as if they were going to Kumite <laughs> for, for speech and debate. So yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So, you know, you can go check all those out on YouTube. And uh, definitely, if you have nothing to do for 40 minutes of your day, go watch all three in uh you know, and that's how you spent, you know, three quarters of an hour. But I want to get to this last panel because I did not get to see the screening or the panel. So I need you to tell me all about White Lotus and uh, what people would expect when this, I think it's a six episode series, limited series premieres on HBO. All right. White Lotus is an ensemble show. It was made during COVID. So that explains some of the choices made with, say, setting and cast and that kind of stuff. The guy who created it is, is his name is Mike White. He is probably best known for writing the School of Rock movie, but he also worked on like Dawson's Creek, Freaks and Geeks. He also wrote Nacho Libre. So he's an auteur. That's what you're telling me here. I'm hearing Nacho Libre and uh, and uh, School of Rock. He is a Jack Black obsessed auteur. Well, he also uh, wrote the Emoji movie and Pitch Perfect Three. He um, he has history with HBO. He created a show with Laura Dern called Enlightened about 10 years ago. I was not into HBO right then, but I mean, it has all the names and it has Laura Dern, Diane Ladd, Luke Wilson. He, he stars in it himself, uh, Dermot Mulroney. So, you know, a lot of recognizable faces. The start of the panel was basically him saying that HBO had come to him to create a show. And given that they weren't able to create any of their normal shows under the current, you know, protocols, uh, what could he do? 
So he cooked up this idea of White Lotus, which is a satire and a mystery that take place at an exclusive Hawaiian resort. So, you know, you get, it's not, it's not going to be like the best Western on Hawaii. It's going to be someplace that only the rich and famous can afford. So that would explain why there are so few people there, you know, that kind of thing. It's a, it's a place for the elites to go. Right, right. And so one such grouping is the, the headliner, which is Connie Britton and her family. Uh, her husband is Steve Zahn. They have two kids, son and daughter, and the daughter brought a friend. Uh, everyone's teenagers in that group. There's another grouping of, uh, of a newlywed a husband and wife. The wife is Alexandra Daddario who's super recognizable. <laughs> right, right, right. Stifler's mom is in it, uh, Jennifer Coolidge. She She's attending alone with her mother's ashes, and she's sort of a mess. I see. I, I get Stifler's mom for sure. I always think of her as Bend and Snap from Legally Blonde. That's also a good reference, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess Stifler's mom is probably the cooler one to her reference but i don't know when she breaks the ups nose uh the ups guy's nose in legally blonde it always makes me laugh so there you go well see there was never uh, a broadway show of american pie but there was uh, uh, of, of legally blonde right so i that's very true though i am a little shocked that there has never been a broadway or off-broadway musical of american pie that actually sounds exactly like something that would be staged uh you know everyone gets a pie when they walk in or something you know yeah (laughs) some avant-garde theater all right so the show kicks off with a man sitting alone in an airport gate when an older couple sits across the way from him and start peppering him with questions about you know what was he doing on the island oh i was here for my honeymoon where did you stay the white lotus oh we heard that there was a a murder or uh, someone died out there. That's what they say. Someone died out there. And he goes, that's true. They go, where's your wife? And he goes, why don't you <laughs> leave me the fuck alone? And uh, then he goes up and goes and stands next to the glass where, the, you know, you can see the planes and you can see a, that they are loading a body onto the plane. And so... Instantly, dum, bum, bum. Right. So then the uh, flashback to one week earlier and all of the couples and groupings that i just described are on a boat going to the white lotus he is with his his wife alexandra daddario at that point you're led to believe that they are loading his wife onto the plane now is that true i don't know but that is that is the setup for you to think is what is happening interesting so is this a is did the show I'm going to ask this in two parts. Did watching the show, the pilot episode, make you want to watch the next five sections? And if not, or if so, did the panel then make you want to watch it? That's a good question. The show was it was well made. You didn't necessarily get any of the of the kind of loaded stuff that I said about, well, they made it under kind of covid protocol kind of stuff so was this you you know you can buy it i guess in terms of well it's an exclusive resort so there's not very many people around etc etc the part where they say that it was this satire well then you start looking for jokes right or at least some kind of undercurrent of funny and it didn't have a ton of that i mean something that 
was um, occurred throughout the episode that we saw was that Connie Britton's husband, Steve Zahn, is concerned that one of his testicles has gotten bigger than the other. I, can we say that Steve Zahn being married to Connie Britton is satire of a sort? I think we can say that. <laughs> I think that might be some kind of satire of a sort, a sort along the lines of, you know, Eric Peterson being married to Annie Murphy and Kevin can fuck himself. You know, it's, uh... <laughs> it's similar, similar thinking. That's right. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the show yet, you might want to be forewarned that there is um, a generous section of time, at least in, in terms of my eyes, uh, <laughs> in, in which they, they show us the underside of, of, of Steve Zahn's uh, business while Connie checks him out visually. And it's, I mean, it takes up a lot of screen real estate on your TV when they do this. And this is something that continues to bother him throughout the show. So he's constantly fondling himself and it's distracting to everybody else around him because, because he's, you know, doing this. Right. Right. This is supposed to be sort of um, the theme with him, I think, is is emasculation in general, because it's something he brings up with his son in terms of how it must be tough to be growing up right now as a, as a young man and how it's different than when he was a kid. And and his and his son says something like this because we can't harass girls anymore. And he's like, no. Well, well, yes, actually. <laughs> and then in combination with that, he thinks he might have to have his balls removed because of testicular cancer. So it's like, it's a whole thing with him. And there's different themes, I guess, like that with all the different characters. Some are more subtle than others. His is pretty overt right there in the, in the first episode. So was the satire like stupid funny? No, not, not exactly to me. Exactly. Um, there might be somebody out there that, that, that digs it. It almost feels like it's like a cross between uh, like an Adam Sandler Netflix movie, you know, where he gets his buddies together to go on like vacation cross with like below deck Bravo's below deck where you get like the the workers POV kind of thing. There is it, it some se- of it that. seems it seems odd for HBO. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like an obvious HBO pick at all. I may miss I may be missing the mark. I may be missing the, the joke. I may be missing everything. And that's that's perfectly okay with me i i i do a lot but my gut says when people start ranking this on imdb it's gonna be a six point something that's my gut now i don't want to shit on someone's show because it's it hasn't even gotten a chance to get out of the gate yet and it hasn't gotten a chance to find its audience so this is just one guy it wasn't my cup of tea but then again you know i like transformers movies so why was it going to be my cup of tea given what i just described Sure. I mean, and listen, and you put Connie Britton in something and, you know, people love Jennifer Coolidge and Molly Shannon, I see, is going to be recurring in it. And uh, Alexandra Daddario and and Steve Zahn. I mean, you know, seeing his business or otherwise, people like Steve, he's a no name. It's got enough names in it that it's going to draw eyeballs to it. Well, give it a chance. I mean, it's got Uncle Rico, (laughs) John Grease. (laughs) Uh, uh, One of the more amusing characters is played by Murray Bartlett. He is a British guy who is who plays either like the um, head uh, concierge or something, something like that, where he's constantly in everyone's business and handling problems for the guests at the hotel. He's very much the um, fastidious, you know, stuffy Brit guy who who you expect to be in that situation. But then there are moments when he's like, 
he, he reveals that he doesn't exactly have it as together as he's projecting. And there's humor in that, obviously. Um, and the way he plays it is, is good. And, and so, I mean, I'm sucking all the fun out of it with that description so that I, <laughs> so that when you watch it, I don't, I don't steal the jokes because he does it very well. He might've been my favorite part of, of the thing, actually. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's enough to go on there. I think it, it looks like there was 11 people, including the moderator on this, on this panel. Was this one of those examples where virtually 11 people on the panel doesn't work so great getting stories out or this moderator brought them out in groups. So he brought out Mike White, the creator first and talked to him with a few pointed questions and then brought out the different groupings. So like he brought out Connie Britton's family unit as a group and then brought okay. out, brought out like the couple as a group. And Jennifer Coolidge was, I believe by herself and Mark Murray Bartlett was also by himself. I think I might be getting that quite a little bit out of sequence, but yeah, he brought them out in groupings and had questions for the groupings. And so everyone else just had to kind of chill out while, while the groupings were do, taking their time. And then there were some larger group questions later. Was this one of those panels where you watched it at all and got a charge of, like we were talking before, like their enthusiasm or passion for the project alone would make you want to go check it out? Or did it, was it more like this was a thing I got paid for during COVID times in Hawaii? And for Mike White having the credits that he does, he was excitable to, to be there, but not as uh, collected and well-spoken as I've seen some people, but that's not totally uncommon with writers to have no, a, yeah. a, a lot better luck writing yes. <laughs> than, than they do speaking. So I'm not going to hold that against them. So the actors were varying degrees. Like the kid that played the teenage son was too excited to talk essentially, but the people that played the, the teenage daughter and teenage friend they were as well-spoken as people 10 years older than they were. So that was actually kind of surprising because they all answered questions in sequence and he answered his like kind of like a Muppet and the other two answered questions like they'd been doing this for 20 years. So looking at him saying, stop it, you're embarrassing us. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. But there was one interesting uh, answer I got from one of the actors plays Alexander Dario's husband, whose name I couldn't remember earlier. His name is Jake Lacey. He is playing a character who comes from money, but hasn't necessarily experienced any personal success of note to have earned his way onto this exclusive resort. It's their honeymoon, so it was a gift from his his parents, right? Right. He admitted that when he got the character, that he was going to basically approach him as sort of an affluent douche and, and call it a day. And Mike White implored him to look at him as someone that actually has, you know, a large component of douche baggedness to him, but also sees himself as sort of this put upon victim who is never quite living up to anyone's preconceived notion of what he's supposed to accomplish. And so lives with a lot of disappointment reigning his way when he does get a chance to, I don't know, kind of fix a problem or, or approach something where he, he feels like he's been shorted in some way, then that explains why he does it the way he does it. Rather than being a douche, it's more like, well, it's because he gets shit on a lot, even though he's a, he's a well-off douche. Does that make sense? 
It does. It's almost like as if Bradley Cooper's sack in Wedding Crashers had been given a backstory on why he was such an asshole. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he wasn't always that way where he has reasons to be that way kind of thing. And they may not. The, the problem that I was explaining this to Caroline and, and she was she pointed out that she just doesn't know if if rich people problems are, are going to resonate with people on a continuing basis as as tv audiences i mean they have for a long time obviously it keeps coming up as as a very easy easy to relate to trope in terms of that idea of uh well what problems can wealthy people possibly have you know and and right. <laughs> that that kind of thing is a very easy thing that people just understand automatically it keeps getting used but does it still hold that that sway I mean, you and I watched Avenue Five and, and podcasted about that show, and and I feel like that was one of one of the issues with the humor where it would fall flat was when it would focus on the guests and their problems in this luxury liner or Josh Gad's uh, worst jokes in that show were I'm a rich guy, woe is me kind of thing. Like, and it's interesting that that was another HBO comedy and and kind of experimental in its approach and loose in its pedigree. You know, it not not necessarily the the prestige pedigree that HBO always brings to bear. Curious if that just seems to be the well of people that they're looking at, because that was I, I mean, there were some things about Avenue five looking back on it that I, I liked the, the vast majority. I didn't. But I, I think that stands out as one of the issues was like, I just don't find this funny. I just don't relate to it. It's it's not for me kind of thing. Well, Carolyn is even pulling out. Uh, you guys covered the undoing, and that yeah. also also covers affluent people. And she found review after review where, where reviewers were not, you know, they they found things that they liked about the story. And as a podcast, that was a great performing podcast for us. But yeah. in terms of audiences getting much meat and mileage out of caring about the problems of rich people, I guess right. it, it just wasn't there the way that HBO probably hoped it would have been. That's that double-edged sword of people always want to see, and I think this was even, I think this even talked about in the show in Undoing, talking about how people are always fascinated by rich people and their problems, but then at some point also resent it too and don't want to hear about it (laughs) so so it's it's you know it's it's the ultimate of people having their cake and eating it too like i want to see rich people suffer and have problems but also it's elitist and it you know offends and i you know i i don't i don't connect with this but at the same time you can't stop watching it i i think i think that's a common thing with american television viewers i mean if it wasn't dynasty in dallas wouldn't keep coming back to life (laughs) for sure for sure and people don't want to see i mean people don't want to see middle income people murdering and having to deal with the system that's not what draws them (laughs) right right exactly (laughs) if if a middle income or or low income person murders their mistress or is, is arrested for murdering their mistress that's just like tuesday in the bronx some people would say and and not particularly something you want to go watch or tune into or or you know the schadenfreude that we all love so so much that's i think that's the draw yeah, it's tough. It's a tough balance to walk, and I, and whether or not this show gets there, or if it's the best they could do given the the timing of when they made it, you know, all that stuff may come into play. You know, like I said, will I can continue watching it? I mean, I I would have given it 
a pilot shot just for the Connie Brittonness of it anyway. Yes. But um, without the ATX. But would I keep watching? I don't think it's going to be on my priority list to, to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a thing that I'll burn off after it's all aired. I'll kind of go in in one weekend when I'm not watching anything and maybe just burn through it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hate, I hate like shitting on a show, especially one that I didn't watch, but just re- reading about the description, listening to your talk, and then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the draw is there for me to tune into it but if you want to check it out for yourself the six episode series premieres on july 11th on hbo so you guys go check it out and decide for yourselves and let us know if we're totally full of shit and absolutely wrong (laughs) for your pch press podcast i've been mike and this is paul and we'll talk to you tomorrow for day 10 the final day of atx season 10 thanks for listening thanks a lot thank you for listening This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open and we'd love to hear from you.